Well, all right, Christ community, it's good to turn to the, the Gospel of Luke with you this morning. If you would, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 22. We are going to look at verses 1 through 30 this morning as we continue our study of Jesus, our King, this Easter season. And as we begin, I'd like to remind you that we are looking at Jesus' life and His ministry, who He is, through two lenses, so to speak, His state of humiliation and His state of exaltation. Remember, his humiliation, that refers to the fact that from the moment he became truly human in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the moment he took on our flesh, all the way up through his burial, it is a downward trajectory. As he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, as he sets aside his own comfort and not only becomes truly human, but he takes on the form of a servant. And he is obedient to the Father perfectly to the point of death, even death on a cross, taking on the wrath that we rightly deserve. And he goes down to the depths of his humiliation and is buried even for three days. But then comes his exaltation. The crucified king is also the risen Lord. And through the resurrection, his victory over sin, Satan, and death on the cross is declared. And it is pronounced for all the world to see. And after 40 days of life with his disciples, he ascends into heaven and he was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And even now, Jesus reigns as our King, as our risen Lord. And his exaltation, his being lifted up as King, will be consummated when he returns. When every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is indeed the crucified King and the risen Lord. And so we are studying Jesus. We are looking to him and beholding him in Luke's gospel. And asking the Lord to give us eyes that see him in new light so that we can also see ourselves afresh, see our lives afresh, and see how His humiliation and His exaltation doesn't just help us see Jesus truly, but it helps us see ourselves truly as His disciples. It sets out the trajectory of our life as well. Now this morning, as we turn to Luke 22, we are jumping past chapters 20 and 21. In those chapters, Jesus had spent time in the temple. He was teaching the people, and he was also engaging with the religious leadership of the Jews. They were continuing to try to trick and trap Jesus in something he said. They wanted to condemn him, to deal with him, but they could not find anything wrong with what he was saying. And all the same, the people were hanging on his words. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning, in much the same place. Now, the key truth we're going to see in Luke 22, 1 through 30, is that because Jesus is our great King who serves His people, we get to commune with Him and humble ourselves through service that bears eternal fruit. Let me read that again for us. Because Jesus is our great King who serves His people, we get to commune with Him and humble ourselves through service that bears eternal fruit. So let's turn now to Luke 22 and see this come to life in God's Word for us this morning. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came, came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? 
He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. But the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute arose also among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as we begin and turn to this story this morning, to orient our hearts, we should begin with a fundamental question that is worth coming back to over and over again in our discipleship as followers of Jesus. And the question is, do you believe that Jesus loves and likes you? The reason that question is so important is that it is very possible to believe in Jesus, to believe in the good news of His grace for sinners, and yet to doubt His love for you. It's possible to believe a whole lot about Jesus' love, and even to believe in fact that He loves you, and yet to live your life and practice your faith as though deep down He really doesn't like you a whole lot. This can happen for all sorts of reasons, where sometimes we're just going along in life and we realize that deep down we feel as though Jesus is disappointed in us that He's irritated with us, or that He's distant from us, and not just distant because, you know, we've been apathetic, but distant with His arms crossed, back away from us, not really, you know, desiring to, to draw near. And again, although this can happen for all sorts of reasons, regardless of why it's happening to us, there is always only one solution. And the solution is to look to Jesus, to behold our King afresh in His Word, and to remember who He really is. And we're going to do that this morning, and as we do, we're going to see that Jesus is the great King who makes every preparation to commune with His people for us to draw near to Him as He draws near to us. And so as we turn to verses 1 through 13, we're going to see the importance of communing with the great King. 
Now Luke, as we mentioned at the introduction, is, has picked up the story right where he left it off in the end of chapter 19. There's a nice connection between the parts that we're looking at. And the Jewish leaders are continually, continually plotting against Jesus, but they're stuck. They meet a dilemma. On the one hand, they are swamped in fear and pride. They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's teaching. They don't like what he is doing. And they recognize that if left unchecked, Jesus' ministry could spell the end of their comfort, of their safety, of their security, and of their control. But on the other hand, the people are hanging on Jesus' every word. They are delighted in his teaching. They are receiving it with great joy and praise. And so the leaders recognize if they go and arrest Jesus in sight of a crowd, then it will backfire and they will likely spark a riot. And so they don't know what to do. Their plans seem foiled and yet, when all their hopes seem dashed, here comes Judas, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the twelve, and he offers to betray Jesus to them for some quick cash. Now as we look at that and we look at verse 3, we see that shockingly this begins with Satan himself entering Judas. We need to be clear from the get-go as we look at something so shocking that this is not a common occurrence that, that Christians need to be afraid of, that we need to be afraid of Satan somehow entering into us willy-nilly. We know clearly that those who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, are safe from such direct satanic or demonic possession. We know this from James 4, 7, which says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not because we're awesome and because we command the name of Jesus, but because he commands us. We are his and he watches over us. So this is not something we need to be afraid of for ourselves, but as we look at Judas, we recognize he did not resist. He did not resist the devil. In his heart, he did not truly follow Jesus. In fact, in his heart were a whole manner of selfish ambitions and sinful desires that led him straight into the jaws of temptation. Judas was not really a disciple in truth. He was an opportunist. And that made him an opportunity for Satan to use him for his own dark schemes. And although Luke doesn't explicitly mention here Judas's greed the way some of the other gospel accounts do, we know that what is motivating Judas is a selfish ambition and a love of money. Because that's what the leaders offer to give him. They offer to pay him a sum of money. And the interesting thing to notice is, is look at the fact that in verse 5, the Jewish leaders are glad when Judas approaches them. And the word Luke uses there is the exact same word used in chapter 19, verse 37, to talk about the disciples rejoicing as they are going down the Mount of Olives and approaching Jerusalem with Jesus. And they're celebrating the fact that He is the King who has come. That word is usually used in the context of worship. But now it's being used in the context of glib conspiracy. They are that excited that Judas would betray Jesus to them. In fact, in their minds, Judas is an answer to prayer. They think God is opening the door for them to get what they want to do with Jesus. And of course, the irony is that God is not only permitting this to happen, He has ordained it. He has planned for Jesus to be betrayed in the hour of darkness, but not for the reasons that either the Jewish leaders nor Satan suppose. More is at play. In this moment and we can tell that because as we look at verse 7 we see very similarly to what we saw last week in Luke 19 with Jesus making preparations and prophetically speaking what would happen as the disciples went to get the colt he's doing the same thing here as he sends John and Peter out to prepare for the Passover 
He is the perfect prophet who down to the detail tells them exactly what will happen, what they will need to say, and what they'll be asked as they go and get the Passover lamb and have it sacrificed at the temple, as they get the unleavened bread, as they prepare the room, and all of the other things you needed to do to celebrate Passover correctly. And it's likely that Jesus may have already worked out in some fashion with the owner of this room and the man who's going to carry the jar of water on his head and have prepared these things. Because it's very likely that he is working in a covert fashion here on purpose. That he is purposefully shielding his plans from Judas. Because remember, Judas' goal is to betray Jesus the first chance he gets when Jesus is away from a crowd. And he will be away from a crowd when he celebrates Passover. And so notice that what's happened here is that Judas' treachery, the fact that he has gone away from Jesus, the fact that he has hidden his real desires and ambitions down in his heart where he thinks Jesus can't see them, he has, in effect, cut himself off from Jesus' plans and purposes. But at the same time, remember that later in the text, Judas will still be present at the supper. And so interestingly, Judas cut himself off from Jesus' plans. He can no longer be trusted with such information. He won't know what to do with it. But Jesus did not kick Judas to the curb. He didn't throw him out of his presence. And by being at the supper, Judas technically still had a chance to turn back from this scheme. Yes, God is sovereign and has foreordained Jesus' betrayal. And yes, more immediately, Satan has entered into Judas. But at the same time, those things are true. And also true is the fact that Judas willingly chose to do all of these things. The Bible teaches a both-and view when it comes to God's sovereignty and providence and human responsibility, and also, as we see here, the influence of the powers of darkness. And so in this way, Judas' example is a warning for each of us. Again, the text, it's not teaching us some sort of folk theology view of Satan. You know, the devil went down to Georgia, don't make a deal with the devil, sell your soul to him, that kind of thing. There's no biblical basis for that. But this, this passage is warning us that we need to know ourselves. We need to know where we are vulnerable and open to attack and open to temptation. We all need to ask ourselves the question of where are you most vulnerable in your discipleship? And following that, which desires and ambitions are most likely to lead you into temptation? We all have certain things where we know we are weakest there. Certain conditions, certain opportunities are more likely to pull us astray in sin. And we need to ask these questions with both eyes open. And remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can ask these questions and be not afraid. And we need to remember too that sin is still powerful even for Christians. It's guilt and it's shame and consequences can still prove devastating to you and those around you, even if, eternally speaking, you are spared condemnation in Christ. Sin can still ruin and make a mess of your life and the lives of those around you. We know this. And so we have to know ourselves. We cannot fool Jesus, but we can absolutely fool ourselves the way Judas fooled himself. He didn't know himself, and by the time it was too late and he regretted what he did, he realized the most horrifying thing of all. Not only did he not know himself, but he never really knew Jesus. And so J.C. Ryle, the Anglican theologian and pastor, is right in his comments on this passage when he says, 
that we need to let the recollection of Judas Iscariot constrain every professing Christian to pray much for humility. At best, we have but a faint conception of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, the lengths to which people may go in religion and yet be without grace is far greater than we suppose. And so again, remember though, if you are in Christ, if you want to be in Christ, even if you're not yet a believer, but you want to be, you don't need to be afraid of asking this question and of stepping into the light because the light Jesus brings us into is not the sterile, blinding light of judgment, but it is the warm, bright light of communion with Him, our King. We get to commune with the great King who loves and likes His people. That's why it's worth asking this question so we don't let things pull us away from such communion with Jesus. Now with that in mind, let's continue to, to look um, at the grand celebration of communion at the table here. And in particular, as we look at this part of the story, we're also going to consider serving under the King who serves His people. Now right away as we press on into the text, looking especially at verse 15, we notice Jesus' deep desire to eat the Passover with His disciples in this moment. He says He earnestly desired it, to eat it with them before He suffers. And so we can see there are two things at play here. On the one hand, Jesus wants to be with His disciples. He earnestly desired their company. He loves and He likes them. He not only loves them as His disciples, but He also likes them as His friends. And then that's why, secondly, He desired their company for a very specific reason. Remember, Jesus is truly God and truly human. This isn't just a show of affection that He didn't actually feel in reality. This is genuine human emotion. And like anybody, as Jesus is about to enter into suffering, as He's about to go into something excruciatingly severe, He finds comfort and encouragement in the presence of His friends. And so He's excited to celebrate this Passover meal with them. And He not only wanted to eat the Passover with His disciples in this moment, but He also wanted to prepare them and us, His church, down through the ages for the next chapter of redemptive history. Because what is happening here is a key moment of transition. In verses 16 and 18, you'll notice that He's explaining they won't eat the Passover again or drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom comes in full. Jesus is going to eat after He's resurrected in Luke 24. He'll eat fish. And I imagine he drank water and things like that. But he's not going to drink wine again. And he's not going to have a celebratory feast like this again until all his people sit at table with him at the grand wedding feast of the Lamb, which is described beautifully for us in the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is enjoying this Passover. But then as things are transitioning, he institutes the Lord's Supper to nourish the disciples in that moment, to continue to nourish them after His resurrection, and to nourish us today. The Passover reminded Israel over and over, year after year, of their deliverance by God's grace from bondage in Egypt. And now, the Lord's Supper would be oriented around the person and work of Christ. It would remind us of our deliverance from sin, Satan, and death in Jesus by His grace. Instead of there being an actual lamb, it would be the Lamb of God, Jesus, slain for our sins. And so Jesus takes ordinary elements of bread and wine, things the disciples would continue to have access to. And in the midst of having the Passover, you'll notice 
Luke mentions more than one cup, and that first cup would have been one of the four cups of the Passover. And either Jesus goes and he does something completely new with the bread and wine, or he takes one of those cups from the Passover, and he now institutes it as the Lord's Supper. But either way, he's bringing in something new, and it's centered around himself. And he points to the bread and he says, look, the Father has given me, and I am giving myself for you that you would not endure the wrath and justice your sins deserve, but I will take it on for you. I'm your substitute. And then he takes the cup and he says that this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. And the new covenant is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. It's alluded to in Isaiah 42 and our assurance of pardon this morning. It is also spelled out most fully in Jeremiah 31. And the new covenant was God's promise not to give up on his people. He had made covenant after covenant with them, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Noah back before that as well, and then Adam even before all of that. And time and time again, God's people broke their end of the covenant, but he was faithful. And the new covenant was this promise that he would make a covenant unlike the others, fulfilling all of them, but new in the sense that no longer would there be a foreshadowing of their sin being taken away through the bloods of, an through the bloods of animals. But now it would be taken away in full. He would remember our sins no more because the blood of his own son would be shed. The fulfillment would be here. And also part of that new covenant spelled out in Jeremiah 31 is that we would have new hearts, that he'd write his law within us. He'd give us the Holy Spirit. A new life would be made available to us in union with Christ. And so Jesus is saying, all of that is about to happen in me. And so he gave the disciples a supper to understand what was about to happen. And he continues to give it to us today to remind us of these things, for the Holy Spirit to unite us to him through communion as we feast on the bread and drink from the cup and know that this new covenant is here in Christ. And as he's instituting the Lord's Supper and beautifully depicting everything he's about to do in the ordinary means of bread and wine, Jesus also tells his disciples that his betrayer is at hand. It's, he's sitting at the table, and we know, we have the privilege reading the story, we know it's Judas. Judas may not have known that Jesus knew he was talking about him, but certainly the other 11 disciples, they did not know which of them was going to do this. And so they start questioning each other. It was sort of like a, a party game of deception, sort of like Among Us or Mafia. They start interrogating each other. They think, if we can just figure out who the betrayer is, before we run out of time, we can stop this. And so their emotions flare, it gets intense. And the more they interrogated one another, the more they got defensive, the more they did what we all do in moments when we feel like we're being interrogated and questioned. We get defensive, we get combative, and suddenly it was no longer just an argument about, hey, who's going to do this? But the best defense they could think of was a strong offense. And so they started making pronouncements of who's the best, who is to be the greatest among them. And they would point to things and perhaps would say, well, you know, I followed Jesus the longest or I carried all this stuff to Jerusalem. They're, they're trying to puff themselves up. And they had already done something like this back in Luke 9, 46. They had an argument about who was the greatest then, right before Jesus began the trip to Jerusalem. And now it's not just an argument, it's a full-blown dispute. Tensions are high. They think the stakes are, are, are vital. So they're fighting among one another. And in the midst of this intense dispute, Jesus is not phased. He tells them very calmly that their values are backwards and upside down. 
The world is full of leaders, he points out. And he says, look around. The world is full of leaders who lord their authority over one another, who focus on what they can gain from their leadership, who focus on building up monuments of their own greatness. He uses the word benefactor here, and that was a very specific word in the Roman society. A benefactor, you could kind of think about them like a mafia godfather. You could go to them and they would help you out, but it was always, a, I scratch your back and you better scratch mine. You can count on me, I better be able to count on you. It was a system of reciprocity. You only gave and did nice things to people expecting to get in return. You were constantly leveraging all of this, all of your status, your position, your resources to get more and more and more. And so the world then is the world today. Everyone is trying to get what they can and give nothing back. The more leadership, the more power, the more authority you have in the world, the more you try to leverage for your own gain. And the greater you are, the less you have to serve, the less you have to give, and the more you believe you deserve to gain. But Jesus calls the bluff on all of this. He tells his disciples, he says, look, I'm not playing the world's game of thrones. He's not jockeying for power. He's not hedging his bets. He's not only investing where he knows he can get a strong return on that investment. In verse 27, he takes their premise that the greatest one gains the most and should have the most status and, and you know, most benefits. And he says, well, look, at a table, the greatest reclines at the table and the least is the one who serves. They would look down at servers at tables in their society, sort of like we look down sometimes confessionally at people in the food service industry. If you've worked in food, you know that. You feel it sometimes. You can be treated as less than just because you're working that job. But Jesus points out, he says, so clearly the greatest at the table, they recline. They don't serve. But then Jesus says, but I'm among you as the one who serves. And the unstated presupposition is, and clearly Jesus is the greatest among them, and yet he is not reclining. He is not using his greatness the way the world would expect him to, but he is giving it away as gift. And he tells his disciples and he says, you need to go and do likewise. This is how it will be in my kingdom among my people. The greatest should become like the youngest because the youngest were often looked down upon and had the fewest rights. But he says, no, you're to be like them. You're to purposely go and lower yourself, lay aside your rights in service to others. The leader should become the servant in the kingdom of Jesus. And it's possible for us to read this and think, man, this is a mic drop moment. You know, here they are bickering over their, their greatness and Jesus comes in and, and you know, says he's serving better than all of them. But Jesus is not rubbing his humility in their face right now. Verses 28 through 30 are full of amazing grace and they help us understand fully what is happening here and again think about it though because the disciples they have been bickering and Jesus was longing for this moment to have this meal it's like when you are preparing a great feast in your family and you've been planning it for weeks and weeks and finally that moment comes and within 20 minutes a fight breaks out and the night's ruined knowing how we feel in those moments we would expect Jesus to be at least minorly annoyed here but he's not in verse 28, he commends these disciples as those who have stayed with him in his trials. And remember, Jesus knows that not only is Judas about to betray him, not only will Peter deny him, but all of them will abandon him and not stay with him in his trials. They're going to fail to pray for him in the midst of his trials next week. And yet he doesn't poke them about that. He loves and he likes them so much that he's seen beneath their selfish ambition He's seen beneath their false aspirations for greatness, and he is giving them the assurance they need 
right now. And he's reminding them, he says, look, as the Father has given to me, I am entrusting to you my kingdom, that you not will be able to be awesome, be great, and get book deals, and get famous, and all that stuff, but that you will be able to eat with me at my table. And yes, he points out that for the apostles, they too will have a unique leadership position judging the 12 tribes of Israel with Jesus. But his point is that they don't need to jockey over greatness because they have everything they need in Jesus. Even though they don't understand it all yet, he is equipping them for what is about to happen. And he is pointing them to the only rewards and only recognition worth pursuing in life. Life everlasting with Jesus, the King, in his kingdom, at his table. And so for me and you, we should take stock of our own hearts. And we should ask ourselves, what rewards and whose recognition do you value most? And what does that reveal about your definition of greatness? So often we find ourselves in life, sometimes without even realizing it, chasing after rewards and recognition because we don't fully believe that Jesus loves and likes us. We don't have rest in Him. And whatever it is we are pursuing, though, whether it's at work, at home, online, in person, whatever it is we are chasing, that tells us what we think greatness looks like. That tells us what we think the abundant life looks like. But Jesus has reminded us that true life is found in Him alone. The world has it all wrong. Greatness is not all about being in charge and gaining and building up monuments for yourself. It's all about serving and giving from the riches which have been given to you as a gift, an infinite gift in Christ. Jimmy Egan, in his book, The Imitation of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, puts this wonderfully. He says, God's supplies of honor and love are limitless, so that we are free to give away as much as He calls us to, without fearing that He will leave us destitute, knowing that our Father possesses these true riches in infinite supply. We can gladly give up meaningless markers of greatness and freely bestow real love on those who need it most. To use Jesus' imagery, if we know that we will one day recline at table in the kingdom of God, then we are free now to join Jesus, who gives up his place at the table, to take the place of the servant. So the Lord's table reminds us that our King has served us in great humility and at great cost to himself. And he served us completely. He served us with his life and with his death. And such love is the only thing where our hearts can find rest and joy. And the contentment and the joy and the peace and the hope we have in Christ, knowing that we are loved and liked by him, sets us free. And it sets us free not to go on living self-centered lives, not to be like, well, I don't have to care what anyone thinks about me anymore. I'm above all that. No, no, it sets us so free that we can become willing to be thought foolish, silly, unimportant, to not be thought about at all, to be unnoticed even. All if it means we are giving of ourselves to someone else in the name of Jesus, giving that which has been gifted to us in Him already. We don't have to build up these monuments of our own greatness, monuments that are going to fade to dust within a few years of our demise, if not sooner. We can, we can serve and be humbled in serving, cultivating fruit that will last for eternity. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit in, in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the fruit of people coming to know this great King who serves us so humbly. So that's what Luke 22, 1-30 teaches us. It teaches us that we get to, as a great gift, 
commune with the king at his table because he loves and likes us. And I, and I wish that, that those of you who are watching this this morning could be with us as we will come to the table in person this morning. I, I look forward to being able to see you at the table, um, hopefully sometime soon. I, I long for the day when our whole church will gather together again at the table. But let us also remember that that longing we feel for our one local church to be together at table again, may that remind us of a longing we should cultivate for the day when every brother and sister in Christ that we have all around the world and all throughout time will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And students and children, I want, I want to encourage you in particular that if you're baptized at our church or even if you're not yet baptized, but if you believe in Jesus, I encourage you to, to talk to your parents about what it would look like to take the next steps to come to the table. Recognize Jesus' love for you. Recognize the fact that He is a Savior. He is a King who loves and who likes His people and who wants us to, to dine with Him. He wants us over for dinner. And Easter is a great time for you to think about who Jesus is. And it'd be wonderful to celebrate you coming to the table for the first time, maybe at Easter when we celebrate it again, or maybe sometime after that. But I encourage you to talk to your parents about that so we can rejoice at you coming to the King who values the youngest. And the other thing that Luke 22 teaches us is that we get to, we get to, it's not just you have to, but we get to humble ourselves through service that bears eternal fruit, all because the King has first served us. So let's give him thanks now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you call us into the light of communion with you, that you love and you like us, which means we don't have to be afraid. There's not no condemnation. The new covenant reminds us that in your body and blood being given and poured out for us, you have taken our sins to the grave and you have been raised up, leaving them behind and bringing in your hand righteousness and life that are yours and that you have gifted to us and they become ours by grace. Amen, Lord, that that is true and that you love us so well and you have served us and we pray that you would help our hearts to find rest in you, that we would recognize the freedom we already have in your name and in union with you, that we could become disciples and a church of disciples who devote ourselves and humble ourselves in service, not only to one another, but Lord, to the lost, that we would join in your mission to seek and save the lost and that we would be able to rejoice as we cultivate eternal fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and the fruit of people coming to know you, the great King. We pray this all in your name. Amen.